0: You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: Good morning. Welcome to NSPS Radio Hour for another lovely day. We're happy today to have Chris Klein with us. Hi, Chris.
2: i back again, taking back again. advantage of sitting inside and not having to be out and roasting right this night.
1: Oh, boy. Then I tell you, this weather's kind of steamy, isn't it? Yeah, a little bit muggy. And my son and his family are at uh, Myrtle Beach this week. He sent me a couple of photos last night of a thunderstorm. They were they were watching out the window and of course I guess that's the kind of thing that happens at the beach in the summertime. Oh yeah. Well, it, this is the south, so it gets muggy. Yeah, that it does. I'm actually looking forward to going back to the mountains this weekend where I grew up and to be a little less <laughs> humid there, I think. Okay. So um, I'm interested in knowing what's going on with Chris. We, we, we catch up with each other every now and then, and occasionally we'll see each other at a conference. And it seems as though every time I talk to you, you've got about 8,000 more things going on in your life, um, That all of which, of course, is of interest to our, our listeners because it's always connected to, to the profession. And, uh, and I know you're working on a couple of things now.
2: Yeah, I think 8,000 is an exaggeration. It's probably more like 7,400. <laughs> but, yeah, I've got uh, I've got some seminars coming up. I'm going to Texas in September to San Marcos. That's so going to be fun. That'll be my second trip to Texas. I was in El Paso last year and headed to Wyoming in November, which I'm hoping like heck I managed to skip the first major snowstorm of the fall-winter season when I go up there.
1: Where you going to go in Wyoming?
2: Wyoming is, uh, let's see, it's in Casper, I believe. And that one, I'm, I'm basically doing 12 hours straight on prescriptive rights and unwritten rights. I was a little dubious when I talked to the guy I was putting this together with, but he was actually very enthusiastic. So we're doing a full day on, on how to fix a boundary line, and then we're doing half a day on nothing but prescriptive easements. So I've, got a, I've got a new class I put together this year, pretty much in self-defense because I was trying to do adverse possession like you've never seen it in a half day, and I was trying to include prescriptive easements, and it just got to the point where there was too much data, too many questions, and so I decided to split them out, and I've now got adverse possession like you've never seen it and prescriptive easements like you've never seen them as a separate class, and that way it's, it's doable in a half day but that'll be the first time i teach it in wyoming i just basically built it for them well so
1: i think you've probably answered this question before one of the things about the things that you do that i've always found to be really interesting is how you you tailor things to wherever you're going you know a lot of times and and sometimes people don't need to do that because it's you know more of an uh, overarching thing but uh, I'm sure you've heard this as, as time has gone along when people go to conferences they're like well that guy showed up and he didn't even talk about what's happening in my state. Um, but you always seem to do a lot of research and and do this you know pull things together and does, does technology help you with that now more so than maybe in the past? I mean obviously that'd be a big deal to have to try to go look up things or, or find things in person.
2: And, yeah, it's it's a huge, it's a huge help. I do a lot of my research on the computer, and it's, obviously, you're able to find large quantities of, of useful information a lot faster. If anything, it, the advantage is also the disadvantage, because you end up swimming in an absolute ocean of information, and you're trying to figure out what's relevant, what's not relevant. What are we going to cover? When I, when I started building the Texas class on wars between the states, that's, That's the class that I do. It's not about the civil war. It's about the disputes that occur between states over state boundary lines. And my first concern when I started teaching that class was, I'm going to get invited somewhere, and there won't be any local state boundary disputes for me to get involved with. And particularly in Texas, you find that just the opposite is true. I'm supposed to be teaching a half day, and there are just case after case after case where Texas has gone to court against some of its sister states over the boundaries. The Red River cases, there's about three of those, and then there's the dispute over the Rio Grande River. There's the disputes, for that matter, between you know Texas and Mexico. That had to be resurveyed not that long ago. And then there's all the fights over the offshore rights in the Gulf of Mexico. So when you get to Texas, it's not a matter of having enough material. It's trying to figure out what you're going to include. So that's uh, go ahead. I was going to say I think some of that Red River. I mean,
1: I'm sure it's not just one case, but um, some of the Red River stuff. Uh, I don't know if you know who Davy Edwards is, but I think Davy got involved in some of that and made a, even made a presentation at our conference last year. But um, it's, it is interesting when you when you get into those those cases and particularly the the ones between the states and not the not the personal ones.
2: Yeah, and the if I remember correctly, the Red River cases, there's one where it's the argument over where the line enters the Red River, and then there's another separate piece of litigation over how the boundary follows the Red River, and then you end up with dealing with all the issues of riparian law and accretion and erosion and abulsion. And they end up researching the history of the river, and I know it's a big deal. It wasn't that long ago that I picked up a newspaper and saw that, there was a dispute between ranchers and the government over ownership of property, and as soon as I started reading it, about the second thing that jumped out at me was it was on the Red River. It's like, okay, <laughs> well, now we know it's complicated. So, And, of course, the newspaper article was, was not written for a technical audience, but it's like whenever I read about a boundary dispute in Texas, it's always on the Red River. There's, there's another one up on the north side of the state that's been an issue. So there's there's lots of stuff to talk about in Texas on on state boundary disputes. They've got some good ones too between municipalities. I try to take the I try to take the wars between the states. That's you know, if you will, the battle of the titans. For I mean, that's a hackneyed phrase. I understand, but the fights between these states, and then look at the lessons you learn from those, and how the principles that they apply are equally applicable to personal boundary disputes and that's to me where it gets interesting otherwise it's just a history lesson for most surveyors the the number of surveyors who have actually been directly involved in a state boundary dispute would would be relatively small but when you look at those principles of riparian law acquiescence of accretion and erosion and then you realize that those are just as applicable to surveyors on a on a day-to-day basis it it starts to become more relevant
1: so, are some of the things that you deal with, uh, particularly in Texas, um, is that are those the types of cases that? And I, I don't know; I can't think of the exact name of it, but but they have um, they're like state licensed surveyors. They're they're professional surveyors, but they have a second license. And my buddy Jack exactly. Goodson was one of those people, and and I
2: know of a couple other folks there in Texas who are in that category. Yeah, I, and the truth is, you're you're kind of out of my area of expertise specifically, but I am aware of the fact that there are two tiers of surveyors, and it's pretty tough, as I recall, to get to the second tier. I believe I met, the last time I was in El Paso, I think I met one guy who had met the requirements, and the second guy who was in the process of trying to work through the requirements but hadn't completed the process yet. So it's it's not a lightweight thing in Texas, is my understanding, to get that, that higher level certification
1: yeah, and then you know texas has a, a state land surveyor's office too uh, my buddy ben thompson i, I think ben's still there um, mm-hmm. was was involved with that and uh, it's i was just curious about that because i know i don't know well i don't really know what i don't know <laughs> about the topic i just know in talking to jerry and ben and some other people i know several people who, who hold that uh that classification that that it is specific to when there is a state boundary involved, rather than mm-hmm. just just one between two individuals. And, and it might turn out that somewhere along the line it was a state boundary and two individuals are involved. Now I, I don't really know all the details about that, but it's just sort of an interesting perspective because I'm not I don't know if there's any other state that has a, a particular license like that or or, or a classification like that that separates people who can do things related to state boundaries and people who can't?
2: I haven't. I haven't heard of it in another state, which definitely doesn't mean it doesn't exist in another state. That's one of the things that keeps this interesting to me is every time I go somewhere new, it's it's a whole new ball game. It, You know, when you look at Texas and you realize that even just looking at original grants, you have to realize they might have come from any of three, a minimum, mind you, of three different governments, because it could be... Spain could be a Spanish grant, or it could be from the Republic of Texas, or it could be from the state of Texas. I mean, you've got and an different sets of appropriate legal principles in place for each one. So it's not a simple state to deal with. No way, no how. So, and, and again, I know you're
1: studying this for your course and, and don't expect you to be an expert on all that those kind of things. but when you're talking about those different principles, um, do they carry forward or is there some point in time when a, a, a say a state takes a state procedure or, or position on the boundary takes precedent over one of the other char- uh, characterizations? Or do you follow all the way
2: back to when it was
1: originally done?
2: Well, the best answer to that is, is the favorite lawyer's answer, which is it depends. There are <laughs> definitely there are definitely times where the Spanish grant lines are gonna control and I've got specific rulings from Texas where the attorneys talk about the influence of the Latin American law and La Siete Partidas on the early grants. So depending on the circumstances it may be that you still have to go back to the original spanish law in order to determine ownership to determine who has what property rights but then on the other hand there are going to be certain situations where in coming into the united states and becoming a state in the union that federal law is going to supersede state law and you're just going to have to look at the circumstances to see which controls and again it, it makes it if anything more complex the the case that i researched It's actually for the three new ways to get into trouble class. It's called Severance v. Patterson, and it's a 2012 ruling. But that one has to do with uh, the rolling easements and the Open Beaches Act. Now, Open Beaches Act was enacted over 70 years ago, and as far as I can tell, landowners and the state of Texas have been fighting over the effect of this thing ever since. So you're talking about a 70-year fight, essentially. But... Severance v. Patterson, is it's a really well-thought-out case. It's very detailed, and it was very high stakes. But they're talking about a piece of property that was sold. It was West Galveston Island in 1840. And they went all the way back to, you know, what were the laws of the Republic of Texas? What were the Latin American laws? What were the laws at the time this island was sold? It was sold without any reservations. They go through this whole process. They come to a conclusion as to whether the rolling easements had intruded onto this guy's property, and then the last thing they say is, "This ruling only applies to this particular place and this particular storm and this particular island." And if you go five it or not, the coast, Chris,
1: excuse me, sorry, over. believe it or not, we're at our first break already. <laughs> so let's let's go do that, and we'll pick back up when we come back.
3: Want to know if your Shonsted locator is still under warranty? Go to Shonsted.com and click on Warranty Finder in the lower left-hand corner. Enter your six-digit serial number, and it will tell you everything you need to know. Out of warranty? Click on Repair Department. But here's a tip. Before sending it in, pick up a $25 discount by going to Specials and Sales under the Buy Now tab at www.schonstedt.com.
4: 800 438 0387 or go to quickstate.com that's Q U I K S T A K E.com and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today.
0: Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on Webradio.com anytime you like.
1: Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at obamacarewatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at obamacarewatch.org.
3: Attention, surveyors. Seanstead announces the Maggie, the next-generation magnetic locator. The Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Seanstead products, the sensitivity and precision of the GA-52CX and the visual display and single-handed operation of the GA-92XT. Contact your dealer for details or go to www.Seanstead.com. Seanstead, the best just got better.
0: You're listening to America's AmericasWebRadio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: We're back with Chris Klein. We were talking about work he's doing in preparation for some workshops he's going to be doing out in San Marcos this fall. And uh, interesting, the, the case you were talking about, and, and I know we got into talking about a lot of it. One of, the th- one of the questions that came to my mind as you were saying that was, does your do you usually generate interest in a particular case um when you get asked to come somewhere to to speak cuz i know you like to keep it local for the group mm-hmm. or does kind of sometimes one case lead to another and you you get into a lot of different ones uh and maybe even come up with an idea for a for a workshop and some research that you're doing i maybe it works both ways i don't know <laughs>
2: I have gotten to the point where there there are times when people want me to talk about a specific topic, and one of the new classes I built this year was basically a specific demand by a state society, and they said, we want you to teach on this topic. I was like, okay. So I started putting it together, and then once I started, it really came together, and it, and it turned out to be a really interesting class. We can talk about that one a little bit, too, if we want. Um, as far as this Texas case, Severance v. Patterson, I think, is high enough profile that they actually specifically insisted that they wanted that discussion in there. So I believe I had done a a short breakdown of the case when I taught in El Paso. And in retrospect, that probably wasn't a great choice for that case because it's an oceanfront case and El Paso is in the middle of the desert. Um, But then coming to San Marcos, I'm going to have more of an audience that's going to be closer to the coast and... So I've rebuilt that one and tried to make it more detailed, because it's a major ruling. It has a direct effect on how surveyors are going to be operating in that part of the state, and they were interested. So so that one is specific.
1: Well, speaking of pulling things together, you mentioned you were going to be going to Wyoming in in Mm -hmm. November, Um,
2: so what's that one going to be about? I mentioned earlier, that's basically 12 hours of prescriptive rights and unwritten rights. The The prescriptive easement class, just it's another one that kind of steamrolled on me. I started off with it as an adjunct to adverse possession, and then I realized that there were all sorts of odd topics that you could throw in, because I kept finding case law on, can you have a prescriptive easement for parking a car, and... The short answer to that is several courts have said, if you're parking a car there, you're basically preempting all right to use the land, and therefore it can't be a prescriptive easement. It has to be an adverse possession claim. But then we start looking at underground prescriptive easements for sewer lines and the whole question of how can it be open and notorious if it's buried underground and nobody can see it and nobody knows it's there. And, and different states have taken different approaches on that. A couple of states have gone back to coal mining cases where people were tunneling under other people's land and stealing coal, and the question of constructive notice and the due diligence required of a property owner. How can a property owner police the subterranean portion of his property? So uh, then there were cases on tree branches. Is an encroaching tree branch, can you can you win a prescriptive right for a tree to grow across the line onto somebody else's property? There's, just a lot of strange cases and then there's the one about beavers building a dam can a beaver be the agent for creating a prescriptive easement all sorts of cases on prescriptive easements and some of them are funny like the beaver case but a lot of them have a real impact i think on the way we practice our profession what happens when you discover an unknown sewer line running under your client's property what what are the ramifications there um it's it got more and more interesting and more and more complex, and then I realized it needed its own class.
1: You were talking about the, the coal mining thing. I, I I can't remember who was on the show with me one time before. We kind of got into that discussion a little bit, and it, it reminded me of a time years ago in southwestern Virginia where we were tasked with trying to define on top of the ground where mineral rights were under the ground. Mm-hmm. And my recollection of that is, Hopefully, it's a correct recollection. <laughs> At my age, sometimes I'm not sure if they're correct. But my correct my my recollection of that is that oftentimes those underground rights didn't belong to the surface owner. Well,
2: there's certain it's it's very common in in the coal mining areas, and of course, not just coal mining. It could be salt mining. It could be all sorts of minerals that the the surface estate has in some manner been severed from the subterranean estate, and exactly how those rights are created and how those rights are divided is going to depend on the mineral that's being sold out, the geology of the area, what would the terms of the original agreement. Come to think of it, you said you weren't sure who you talked to about this. It might have been me, because I've done research on adverse possession of mineral estates, and I, I might have be. talked yeah. about that. Yeah, yeah.
1: In, so, your, in the little information you sent, me, sent to me, you were talking about uh, for the Wyoming case. You were putting a set, uh, adding a section about gates and and their effect on prescriptives.
2: Yeah, that was something I hadn't really spent a lot of time researching. Mainly because I hadn't really tripped over it. It didn't seem to be absolutely a controlling issue in a lot of cases. There were a few. I've, I've got some eastern cases from before where they talked about he built a gate and then the other got tore it down or something like that. But when I got out and started researching the case law for prescriptive easements in this part of the country, Colorado, Montana, Wyoming, oh, man, everybody wanted to argue about the gates and the cattle guards. I, I don't think I mentioned that in the notes, but installing cattle guards can change the nature of, of your possession on the land. I mean, cattle guards are a big deal in prescriptive easement law in this part of the country, and nobody saw fits and mention it in the cases I had read in the eastern part. But the the question comes in, can you create a public prescriptive easement on an undeveloped road? And in this part of the country, they have a strong principle of neighborly accommodation and I found case law where they say, this is the way we do this in this part of the country. It's sparsely populated. There's a lot of large tracts of unenclosed land. And basically, everybody knows that people go out there and they drive across land they don't know. So there's, there's a different attitude by the people themselves, and that has become embodied in their common law. In other words, the custom of the people has become part of the common law for prescriptive easements. And it's so I had to add a whole section on gates and cattle guards because it's important if you're in Wyoming.
1: You know, the, the mention of cattle guards and gates reminds me of a time when somebody was asking me what it was like where I grew up, and I said, I grew up in the part of the country where you could not go on a date without having to open a gate or cross a cattle guard to get into the property. And, and that's true in most cases because you know, everybody had some kind of livestock they were trying to keep out of the road or whatever. Oh yeah. Uh, so you've got this this new book you're starting to work on, right? Well, you said the the manuscript's pretty much done, and mm-hmm. you mentioned that your wife, of course, reads things to you, which you can talk about later on. I thought that's kind of interesting. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> so did this just come to mind because of all of the things that you run into, or what, what, what's, what's, what drove that?
2: What drove it is is me wanting to understand more of what I was writing about, and that's frequently um, a principle I use. If, if I can't write a coherent summary of what I have studied, then there's a pretty good chance I don't understand what I'm talking about yet, so that means I need more study. But this has actually been about a about a two-year project. I started working on it 2014 after my Adverse Possession book came out, and it got up to about 100 pages, and then it stalled. And I had some other things going on. I had a lot of classes I was teaching, and I actually got distracted by the, the Riparian Boundary book that I put out last summer, the short book. And then I got back on this one, and I think what kind of pushed me into it was teaching the class on the statute of frauds, and I started researching unwritten rights again I believe that one was in Missouri, and, and that kind of got me dry, driven again on the book. I always feel like there's this kind of break point. When you get to about 100 pages, you just look at it and you go, oh, man, I'm never going to be done, and it's, it's hard to stick. And then once you can push it back about past 150, 175 pages, it's like all of a sudden you feel like you're within reach, and then, and then it just steamrolls. But at one point, I was writing about thirty pages a week just because I couldn't stop. So this one is—I haven't actually picked the title yet—but it's all unwritten rights. I'm not just doing adverse possession this time, and I've got a couple of topics that I haven't really—I don't think a whole lot of surveyors have even heard of yet. Part performance of an oral contract is one. Um, but I was trying to figure out how to pull this all together, and. What after writing and rewriting and rearranging the material and, and shoving things back and forth, a lot of it came right back to the statute of frauds. And we enacted the statute of frauds in 1677, and we've spent the last 350 years figuring out ways to ignore it. And, I mean, seriously, enacted in 1677, but as soon as, as early as 1685, in the English law, part performance of an oral contract was brought into their legal system as a way to avoid the statute of frauds. And estoppel, it came into very shortly thereafter, say 1722, I believe, Lord Mansfield introduced estoppel into the English system. So all of this was a direct result of the fact that the statute was put into place and then people ignored it. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. And then the courts had to figure out, what do we do now? So So that
1: kind of led to the the whole thing. And we only got about a minute and a half in this segment, so I don't know if there's time to do it. But maybe it would be good at some point, either if we don't have time now when we come back from the break, to focus in a little bit on for the audience exactly what what statute of frauds means and what it means in 1677.
2: Yeah, and actually, that's a a good minute topic. It's not terribly complex in its basic formulation. The idea is you can't transfer title to real property without a written contract, a written agreement, a deed, if you will, which has been accepted by the grantee. So that's it in a nutshell. But prior to that, remember, people were used to transferring title by actions on the ground. They would meet on the land. And by the process of livery of season, they would transfer title by this formal process. But then we changed the law in 1677, or rather England did, to be technical. Right. <coughs> and so virtually... No, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, you know, virtually all the states in the United States have some variation of the statute of fraud. Louisiana has an unusual... Sort of a hybrid system between Napoleonic code and English common law. But
1: well, maybe we can pick up on some of those uh, differences a little bit if you want to cover that when we come back and and in the overall context of the book. So let's go take our second break and we'll be right back.
3: Attention okay. surveyors, Shawnded announces the Maggie, the next generation magnetic locator. The Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Seanstead products: the sensitivity and precision of the GA52CX and the visual display and single-handed operation of the GA92XT. Contact your dealer for details, or go to www.seanstead.com. Seanstead,
4: the best just got better. Quick stakes. 0387 or go to quickstake.com that's dot com, and order your samples ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today
2: buzz off with lawyer liz join me each week wednesdays at two o'clock as we talk
3: drones internet of things and technology Want to know if your Shonsted locator is still under warranty? Go to shonsted.com and click on Warranty Finder in the lower left-hand corner. Enter your six-digit serial number, and it will tell you everything you need to know. Out of warranty? Click on Repair Department. But here's a tip. Before sending it in, pick up a $25 discount by going to Specials and Sales under the Buy Now tab at www.schonstedt.com.
0: You're listening to America's com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: You were saying in the break, Chris, there was something you wanted to touch on when we came back before we got into specifics.
2: It's something that I, I wanted to mention simply because I've received some emails and, and several comments regarding... Uh, my course material, the material that I include in my books, and for that matter, of course, in the the POB articles, and that is people look at what I'm teaching and they say, you know, do you promote the surveyor as, you know, essentially a replacement for, you know, the judicial system? In other words, should should the surveyor go out there and survey according to his understanding of the law? And my, my position has always been fairly clear on that, which is, I don't promote the idea of the surveyor as a replacement for the judicial branch. And then, having said that, the next question comes up, well, then why do we need to know all this stuff? And I never could formulate a really good answer to that until I tripped over a Michigan ruling. And what I realized when I read this case was there's, there are surveyors and there are specialists who like to focus in on the facts. They want to collect facts. And, of course, the surveyors were supposed to be primarily the collectors of information, of facts on the ground. And then we have the specialists who collect the law, and they read the law, and they speculate on the law, and try to analyze it and figure out how it fits into this bigger picture. But what the Michigan ruling says is this. The world is full of facts. There are facts everywhere, all sorts of data out there. And the world is full of all sorts of law. And the problem... The difficulty for the courts is not necessarily knowing the law or knowing the facts, but taking the most relevant facts in a given situation, putting them together with the most relevant law, which is appropriate to the situation, and eliminating all the side issues which are not relevant to the situation. So my my answer when people now ask me, why do I need to know this stuff? It is, if you don't know the law, you will not understand which facts are relevant and which facts are not relevant. So you may be staring at something right in the face that's extremely critical, and without knowledge of the law, you may walk right past it, and instead you may locate all sorts of evidence which isn't really critical to the case. Once that happens, you present the data to the attorney. The attorney now has a flawed picture, and that's going to lead to a bad decision it's going to lead to a decision based on incomplete data. So it's the understanding of the law that tells us what are the controlling factors and what do we need to properly represent on our surveys and in our reports. So that, to me, is the justification for surveyors knowing this data, even though we don't just ignore the judiciary and pretend they they don't exist.
1: So having said that, what's your thought? (laughs) on whether or not, through whatever our educational mechanisms are, whether it's through the experience routes that many have come through through the years or it's the four-year degree requirement that we have today, um, is is anybody in any of those situations putting enough emphasis on what you just said?
2: I think they are. I I think there's some very good educators out there um the program that i've seen the layout for the uh program at new jersey institute of technology
1: uh mm-hmm.
2: dr dr Potts, i believe is that right yeah
1: laramie Potts. Huh?
2: yeah uh, that system is impressive when i when i sit there in new jersey and talk to the students at servcon who have come up through the ranks under njit they have learned a lot of law and it's impressive um And I know there's other programs around. There there are other places where I've talked to students and they're learning that end of it. Now, obviously, that's not all they need to know, and they're learning all sorts of other topics, more technical topics. But I feel like without that understanding, we're primarily technicians instead of being surveyors.
1: Well, that's one of the reasons I ask you the question, because oftentimes we we have discussions about what level of education is required, and what pieces of education should be included in whatever level of education is required? Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't very often hear people talking about that particular aspect of why it's important. Although it is really important, I don't hear people talking about that all that much.
2: And maybe mm-hmm. that ought to be a bigger piece of our conversation. I would, I would hope so. To me, it's, it's. Uh certainly a critical part. It's not the totality of what we do, but it is certainly sure. an important part.
1: But but sort of going back to what you were saying earlier on this particular issue in terms of what's relevant, what isn't relevant, um, it, it seems to me that it is maybe isn't the only important element. But it clearly is an important element because if you learn all of the other things, all the technical perspectives and a lot of things that that many of us learned years and years ago as we were coming through getting our, our education either in school or on the ground, um, I don't recall an awful lot of focus in the on-the-ground part on this particular piece of it. So that, in my mind, sort of makes a case for... We need to have a way for this this education to occur. However, that's going to occur,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and that's kind of hard to do when when you're in the middle of uh, getting crews out every day or or whatever. But somewhere through education, mentorship, some combination thereof, um, just getting to the to the very basics of what you were saying there earlier in terms of. Yeah, there's lots of information to gather. There's a lot of ways to look at stuff, but if you don't understand this side of it, you won't know. What did you say? You don't know when. You know. Uh, you won't know which facts are relevant. Mm-hmm,
2: exactly. I'm I'm working on a case right now, and which I can't talk about details on. But but the fact is, we're we're almost buried in information. Old photographs, documents, old lawsuits, all sorts of information is there. And the trick is figuring out what's relevant and what's not.
1: And and that seems to me to be a a, a difficult task to make that determination in terms of when it's, what's relevant and when it's relevant and when it might be the same information and relevant one time and not another.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, this whole thing, when when I talked about prescriptive easements in Wyoming and the cattle guards, I'm not sure I would have paid that much attention to cattle guards before I read the case law. Now I know they're important. If I was surveying out there and there was a prescriptive easement case, I'd be locating every culvert, every cattle guard, every gate, because you darn well better.
1: Well, I hadn't necessarily anticipated that our conversation today was going to go to this particular issue. But I'm really glad it did, because I think it brings up uh, an important element of the discussion that we need to continue to have about relevance. And maybe our slogan should be, if we as surveyors want to remain relevant, then we need to understand relevance of the information we're dealing with. Uh, That's kind of a crazy way to say it, but...
2: it it needs a little spin I think it it could sound better than that it's a good idea
1: yeah I'm I'm certainly not into the spin part but just the basic principle of because that is a big question in, in, in today's world in and out of the profession is what's the relevance of a surveyor hey we've got cool equipment lots of other people have it anybody can go get positions whether they're accurate or not it's a whole other question They may be really precisely measured but they may not be accurate so, to me, that's a, that's a really big part of the discussion going forward in terms of the importance of this profession.
2: I mean, I think you can even broaden that statement to say any time you get on the Internet, you are now, you know, the, the wisdom of the universe is out there if you can sift it out from all the other stuff. Right. You know.
1: So you're telling me Wikipedia
2: is not always perfect? Uh, I found one case in class where it was not. <laughs> yeah,
1: I'm sure there are lots of cases where it is. <laughs> That's for sure. Well, we've we got a, a two or three minutes left in this segment, and then I want to do the last segment, but I wanna cover as much of the of the unwritten rights book that you're talking about and some of these different pieces and of course what we've just talked about is, is one of those pieces. Mm-hmm. Um So I want to give you ample time to to talk about those, so I don't want to get sidetracked too much. So if you want to start on that, we can cover the next three minutes or so and then carry into the last segment. Okay. Um,
2: One of the the phrases that that caught my attention when I was doing this research, and and it it doesn't show up that often in case law, but I think it's important, identification by the senses overrides description. When they enacted the statute of frauds in 1677 that was basically put in place with a population. First of all, the population is not universally highly educated, and second of all, the population is used to literally centuries of being able to transfer title by parole. Now, what they had going on at the time was the rise of the, um, the merchant middle class. More property transfers were going on between merchants, and wealthy landowners as opposed to the nobility. So because this occurred, we had attorneys, and I, I don't, this sounds like a slam, I don't mean it that way, but suddenly we had attorneys transferring title when the actual property owners were not on the land and they weren't absolutely sure what they were getting. And the statute of frauds was essentially enacted for that reason because there were very sloppy, informal title transfers going on, and it was creating confusion and creating problems. But having put the law in place, you have to consider the fact that still the people who are transferring title are the grantor and the grantee, and they don't know the technical laws. And that is as true today as it was 340 years ago. I, I found a case, and I don't recall what state it was in right off the top of my head, but They said, people just want to do business. And this is a judge saying this. And basically, what power should the court have to forbid people who really aren't doing anything terrible to conduct their business as they see fit? That's kind of a rhetorical question. But the fact that despite the enactment of the law, people just kept on doing kind of what they had done and they did. Handshake agreements, and they did informal agreements, and they gave stuff to their kids without writing anything down. And they left us with a train wreck. And they left us with process after process, estoppel, part performance, acquiescence, parole agreement, consentable boundary lines. Um, And all of these, when you start looking at it, really go back to the idea somebody did something really sloppy with regards to land and now we have to figure out how to fix it right well we're 20
1: seconds from the break so we we can stop at this point and pick up maybe we can talk about some of those specific items that you just mentioned and they may or may not be uh commonly known to our listeners so maybe we can talk about those when we come back so let's go take that break and and we'll be back in just a couple of minutes
3: Want to know if your Shonsted locator is still under warranty? Go to shonsted.com and click on Warranty Finder in the lower left-hand corner. Enter your six-digit serial number, and it will tell you everything you need to know. Out of warranty? Click on Repair Department. But here's a tip. Before sending it in, pick up a $25 discount by going to Specials and Sales under the Buy Now tab at www.schonstedt.com.
2: Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio.
4: Quick Stakes 800 438 0387 or go to quickstate.com that's Q U I K S T A K E dot and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today.
3: Attention, surveyors. Seanstead announces the Maggie, the next generation magnetic locator. The Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Seansted products the sensitivity and precision of the GA52CX and the visual display and single handed operation of the GA92XT. Contact your dealer for details or go to www.Seansted.com. Seansted, the best just got better.
0: You're listening to America's Webradio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: So for our last segment today, Chris, obviously we don't have time to talk about everything, and so during the break we talked about a couple of things that would be of interest, and one being part performance and the other acquiescence. And, and I'll share with the with the audience what, what I said to you um, when you mentioned part performance. Uh, growing up with a dad who was, was a mechanic part of his life and a minister, a larger part of his life, working on cars still, uh, particularly the ones I tried to, tear up as much as I could. Um, part performance to me meant that when we installed a new part, it was actually going to work, but I'm assuming from a land perspective, that's not what we're talking about.
2: Well, you you illustrate a convenient point because sometimes a given phrase or a different word can have more than one definition depending on the context in which you place it. So, part performance working on a car is not the same thing as what we're talking about. <laughs> I would have assumed so. <laughs> But, uh, but that's not a bad argument. Um, part performance, the the rule has been said, and, and it's a good one and it's pretty widely accepted, and that is because of the statute of fraud, in general, you can't transfer property by, quote-unquote, mere parole agreements. And that, by and large, is true. But the courts have teamed up the idea of a parole agreement or a parole contract they, they make this subtle distinction between a parole agreement and a parole contract where parties have had a meeting of minds, and they have come to an agreement, and the agreement is clear in all its particulars to these parties. And then, you know, at, at that point, it's just an agreement. But after the original meeting of minds takes place, the one party goes on to the land and makes improvements and builds things uh, either with the acquiescence or the possibly even the active assistance of the purported grantor, the court will consider that part performance of the contract. So not only do we have an agreement, but we have actions on the ground which uh, perpetuate or prove the agreement, if you will. And that part performance is sufficient to take the parole agreement beyond the reach of the statute of frauds, And at that point, it is enforceable. And it was it was interesting to me, and I have to admit this, when I started finding these cases where they talked about park performance, I didn't see the significance right away. I kind of went right past them and did other things. But at some point, I found a couple of cases where they were very clear and very emphatic that this had occurred. And it was a transfer of title, and there were no writings, and nevertheless, it was valid despite uh, despite the statute of frauds. So what is required, in a, in a nutshell, if you will, is that not only that there were actions on the ground that can be related to the purported agreement, but there really has to be no other reasonable explanation. In other words, why were these people grading and building a foundation? There's no other reasonable conclusion except that It was the result of this verbal agreement, this verbal contract. So as with adverse possession, the standard's pretty high. You you don't just walk into the courtroom and say, we had park performance, and they give it to you. You have to prove it. But nevertheless, it is real, and it is valid, and I hadn't really paid much attention to it until about a year ago.
1: So just... And not in a nutshell, but just a, a question in part performance. If I'm understanding that correctly, part performance is actually creating some action that is evidence of an agreement for maybe land ownership or whatever. And, and I think one of the things you mentioned was construction of a building or a boat or something. No. So part performance simply means that someone actually acted on an agreement that they had with someone else about land ownership, therefore mm-hmm. proving or at least indicating that there was an agreement for a transfer of land or uses of property or something. Is that, am I understanding that correctly?
2: You you pretty well got it. And one, one thing about this, we, we talked, I mentioned earlier, livery of season, but the method by which properties were transferred before the statute of frauds where both parties would go upon the land and, by a very formal uh, process, a formal ceremony, if you will, they would transfer the title. When you start reading the particulars of part performance, you realize they're not that different from livery of season prior to the statute of frauds. There were parties on the land, their actions clearly indicate the agreement, and therefore title was transferred. It's, it's really an outgrowth or a, a carryover, almost, from livery of season. That's why I say we've we've spent the last 300 years ignoring the statute of frauds. There, there's still ways around it.
1: Very interesting. So, um, is there more we need to know about performance of or part performance, or shall we move into
2: acquiescence? <laughs> well, uh, there's plenty more to, to talk about, but obviously our time is somewhat limited. Uh, we can we can look at acquiescence a little bit if you want. That one has been a, a major thorn in my side for the last couple of years trying to put together a, a comprehensive picture and I mean talk about words with more than one definition I've got I've developed a list of five distinct definitions for acquiescence, all of them accepted by one court or another in the United States. So five definitions take your pick and it depends on the circumstances obviously it depends on jurisdiction.
1: So, so a, lot of, a lot, lot of other answers,
2: it depends. So. <laughs> <laughs> it depends. But it, can be, it can be a title doctrine. It can be evidence of another title doctrine. Frequently, when you look at um, prescriptive easement claims, they will say some variation of the language is open and notorious use with the apparent acquiescence of the record owner. Okay, in that case, acquiescence isn't its own doctrine it is merely action or inaction which is evidence to prove the separate doctrine so that's that's one possible definition and then you've got acquiescence in some states which is actually like a kinder and gentler adverse possession it's a title doctrine it can transfer property ownership from one person to another even where the boundary lines are clear then you've got states that treat it as if it were a parole agreement and there has to be an initial doubt as to the boundary line And then you've got acquiescence between states. The U.S. Supreme Court has its own set of definitions for acquiescence between sovereign states. So you see what I mean. There's just many definitions, and until you know what circumstances you're dealing with in what jurisdiction, you don't know which definition is appropriate.
1: So it's not a one-size-fits-all, obviously, and you have Um, to understand
2: not only the issues but where you are. Mm-hmm. And I have to admit this, it's, it's sad but true. I've had people who were upset with me because they said, what's the definition? And I said, there's not one definition, there's five. And it's, it's as if it's cast as a failure on my part to come up with a single coherent definition when I have to just tell the truth and say there isn't a single definition for all circumstances. It's just, it depends on, on the jurisdiction. I found a in in researching for the book, I pulled a 2014 case from Alaska. Now, Alaska is you know, one of the more recent states to enter the Union, so they don't have the case law history that you see in North Carolina and New York. But nevertheless, they were building their acquiescence doctrine in 2014. They had never developed a doctrine. So they researched all over the country. judge made a good effort. And he came up with the official doctrine, if you will, for Alaska. Now, whether it's going to hold or not, I'm not sure, because there's no precedent. There's literally only one case, so whether it will hold up in the coming years is debatable. But the judge in that case makes a specific statement. He says there's really very little variation between acquiescence doctrine in the various states. And I'm sorry, but that was not accurate. (laughs) I couldn't believe when I read that. Because it is just a different animal depending on where you go.
1: Well, that's always an interesting topic, for sure, and it seems one that requires, again, for all the traveling you do and the different places you go, it seems like there's a <laughs> lot of effort that has to go into. Okay, what applies here? That that has to be difficult to, I would think,
2: difficult to ascertain. Yeah, that was that was actually one of the longest segments in the book I'm working on, because I, I kept wanting to showcase state after state after state so that I could clearly illustrate all the variations. And the more states I started studying, the more variations I found. <laughs> so I ended up with about 25 or 30 states. I haven't done an exact count, because I just wanted to highlight the fact that there is this, this mosaic of different pieces to the puzzle on this issue rather than try to represent it as a single monolithic doctrine that only has one correct definition. It, well, it seems um, to me, and in, in just
1: looking at the, the little outline you sent to me about topics that are going to be covered in the book,
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: it's going to be a, a really broad uh, coverage of lots of different uh, doctrines, and and as, you, as the title says, unwritten rights. So... Given the fact that you told me earlier that part of your process is that your wife actually reads the book to you, so you can hear it being uh, read, how what are we looking at down the road? Do you have a projected time yet when this one's going to be available?
2: I'd like to have it early in 2016. It's we're we're well into the editing process, but we've still got to complete the editing. I've got a like a three-tiered system. I have three different sets of eyes on the document to try to make sure it's it's as error-free as I can make it. So I'm, I'm shooting for early next year. I sincerely hope so. Early next yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a ways to go, but it's it's coming together, and it, it's, it's starting to feel like I'm, I'm more satisfied with it because I wanted to make it for a national audience, but then on the same breath, if I were to research every single doctrine in every single state and then write about it, it would be like an eight-volume set and nobody would be able to afford it. So I had to balance that and try to showcase the states that have a specific emphasis on the the doctrine that I'm talking about in that particular section. So I think I've done at least a passable job of traveling the country and trying to pull in as many variations as possible and then try to give people an overall gestalt of what they're looking at and also give them the tools to look for more if they need to.
1: So it's a a way of raising the level of consciousness to the fact that if you're going to deal with this, maybe you should check into it a little bit, speaking to the reader
2: in this case. Exactly.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Well, when you you get out to Casper, I hope you enjoy yourself. I, I haven't been to Casper. I've been... Cheyenne, Laramie, and up in Sheridan, but I haven't made it to Casper yet, so hopefully that'll your weather will hold out for you. And Again, we're 15 seconds from being out of here, so I want to make sure I thank you for being with me. As always, it's, it's an interesting conversation, and as I said to you during the break, I never have to worry about whether we're going to keep talking or not. So thanks so much for being with me today, Chris. It's been great.
2: Mm, thank you.
0: Have a good week. Bye. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio.